0: You're listening to Coding Blocks, episode 137. Subscribe to us and leave us a review on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, you know, wherever
1: you like to go for your podcast. And visit us at codingblocks.net. We can find show notes, examples, discussion, and a whole lot more. Hey, you're not done. Oh, and uh, feedback, <laughs> questions, and rants to uh, outlaw at codingblocks.net. <laughs> <laughs>
2: <laughs> you can follow us on the Twitters at Cody Blocks or head to www.codyblocks.net and find all our social links there at the top of the page. With that, I am Alan Underwood. I am Joe Zach. And I
0: am Mathema Chicken. <laughs> <laughs> see, I tried to like, you know, hone in my inner Joe Zach there
1: and just mess with the intro just to see like, you know, well, how it would go. Embrace the chaos, I man. Doesn't it feel good to just mess with stuff? <laughs> I, I do like the- chaos. <laughs> this episode is sponsored by Datadog, the
0: cloud scale monitoring and analytics platform for end to end visibility into modern applications. And our newest sponsor, Secure Code Warrior. Build your security posture and defend your organization from cybersecurity threats by empowering your developers with the skills and expertise they need to write secure code from the start. So this episode, we're going to continue our dive into the DevOps handbook. And as we make our way, continue making our way through the discussion of the first way. But before we get into that, let's hear some podcast news.
2: So real quick, um, we're on what page two of this chapter that we're
0: <laughs> like, <laughs> totally kidding. In fairness, we com- we completely covered one of the chapters of the first way last episode and got into a second chapter. That might be a record. Yeah, that, uh, right. that is a record, <laughs> definitely. All right,
2: so I've got I've got iTunes this time, and the first one up we got here is just some dude writing a review. Stu Pub. Andrew Diamond, who we know and love, and Scipio Marcellus. So thank you all for leaving the reviews on iTunes.
0: Except, except if we can, like, interject real quick, Andrew Diamond. Michael doesn't need to sing. <laughs> doesn't OJZ. Like, Michael already sang. So have you not listened to the last several episodes? I think I already sang.
1: <laughs> Oops. He. You know, it was, uh, it was Andrew's bunny. <laughs> was the uh, image for last episode too. That was peanut.
0: Oh yeah, yeah. Oh right. is that his really? Yes.
1: Yeah,
0: oh. oh, that's awesome. Yeah. So not only not only do I not see I used your money. I did yeah. So that's fine. All right. So from Stitcher we have Greg Bowler, definitely not Outlaw. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I feel like Jay Z should've read this one. <laughs> and Threads on Parade. Wow! Watch. Wow! Watch. That's what I was thinking. Yes, I'm glad I'm not the only one that was thinking "Rage Against the Machine" when I read that that yep, name. Yep. That's such a great name, too.
2: Threads on Parade. That one. I know. Really good.
0: I loved that one. Some
2: people are so creative. So yes, thank you all who took the time to write those reviews. We we read them all and enjoyed them all very much. Um, and so as. As he tends to do when we, when we were talking about some, some things, either Google related or even build stuff now, DevOps. Um, I'm going to try and say his name properly and, and I expect him to let me know in Slack. Um, so well, if you want a probable
0: deniability, you'll
2: just let me do it. But no, nah, you go <laughs> right ahead, sir. So it's Murley Surat, Suriar. He, it, he left us information back on the google stuff like with the the code reviews man he dropped some great stuff in in the episode discussion channel in our slack community the other day right after this episode the previous episode released and man it was just golden so there is a build server out there called basil and outlaw and joe i finally sent you the links tonight i had totally forgotten to do it so apologies there
0: uh, i was gonna um, call it out but yeah no that's yeah. fine yeah. Yeah. I told two you weeks I, said ago, him, I did. Two weeks ago, Alan gets all these links and I'm like, oh, hey, man, can you do me a favor? Cause he had already emailed it to himself so that he could go back and read. It. I'm like, hey, man, can you do me a favor? Like, I'm not going to have a time right now. Would you mind forwarding a copy of that?
2: <laughs> so the problem is it was three separate emails and I had to go back and scrub all the links back together. So, um, <laughs> because, because basically what happened is he kept just dropping amazing. Links and knowledge in in this particular chat, so the first thing that I want to call out is this basil build server thing and more or less there are two things about it that are just amazing and and their tagline kind of says it it says build and test software of any size quickly and reliably so the the killer parts about this that are worth thinking about is if you work in a in any particular area like if you're in dot net you probably use ms build or you use um ASP.NET Core to do your builds, right? If you are in Java, you might be using Maven or Gradle or something, right? But it's it's a very specific thing for that. So what Basil allows you to do is build for any language, right? You can use whatever build tools you need for any language that you're supporting. So if you have a hodgepodge of things between Kotlin, Java, C Sharp, um, Go, whatever, right? Like this thing will work for that environment, the other thing that is really nice about it is it will actually see if it needs to rebuild something. So like I, I know Jay-Z, you and I have worked in some, some Java builds and we're using Maven. And a lot of times it just goes through and rebuilds the entire thing every single time. Right. Um. And I've heard that Gradle can be better about that. But Gradle's like a whole new language on its own, right? Like you've really got to learn the ins and outs of it. So at any rate, this thing will intelligently figure out what has been built, what needs to be built. And I, I there was some sort of quote in their documentation that said, it is not uncommon at, um and I don't remember, but it, it might have been Google. It, but I can't, I can't remember exactly, but they could have more than a hundred thousand source files and it take less than 200 milliseconds to build because it can intelligently determine what it needs to build and what it doesn't. Um Now, one of the things that he called out to me on this, and I have not deep dive researched this thing yet, but he said, this is essentially the open source version of what Google does for their internal builds, right? So, Super cool stuff. Definitely worth checking out. So the website is bazel.build.
0: It's actually HTTPS colon slash slash B-A-Z-E-L dot build. So um, a couple of thoughts on that. Like, you know, it makes sense now. Like, what was it that we talked about in the last episode? It was like 150,000 builds a day or something like that. Do you remember the right? number? Oh, yeah. I'm trying to go back yeah, and find yeah, it. All like, those stats. Yeah. I mean, it makes sense now that like you consider the monorepo approach that Google takes uh, from based on, you know, uh, things that we've learned over the years, you know, from from their posts and whatnot, that as, as large as that repo's got to be, now you see like, oh, how this is how they're building. Now it makes sense, like how they can get in a mono repo. Like, you know, like we wouldn't even be able to clone that fast, let alone do that many builds. You know, here it was. I found it. It was, it was 120,000 automated test suites, but it was 50,000, uh, builds per day on average, but more, but weekdays were more like 90,000 builds a day.
2: And that was from a couple of years ago, right? So yeah, I think this book was in out.
0: 2016. So yeah, that was, that's dated information. Right. So now, the other thing though, too, is that like you were talking about the languages that it supports, uh, sadly, like our, our go-to favorite, uh, is not one of the native out of the box. It looks like, cause there's like native rules that ship with it and sadly c sharp isn't in that list or any of the net languages really
1: fork incoming or p r incoming <laughs>
0: well yeah, i mean they give you they, there's apparently like ways that you could create your own rules, but the the native ones uh you know are are aren't doesn't include it
2: yeah, but and one real quick one thing worth calling out too is if you are halfway <laughs> interested in this. Like if you click on their getting started link right there at the top, they actually have this running in a Docker container. So if you are like me an Outlaw and we don't like to install anything for any reason whatsoever, you can try this thing out just by running a Docker
0: container and seeing how it works out for you. And you know how I love a good joke, and I can't believe you you let this one slide because their tagline there at the top of the page is fast, correct, choose two. (laughs)
2: <laughs> uh, that's awesome um, so here's the other thing and he explicitly was like look man if you share that on the show please also make sure you share this because he feels like it doesn't get enough love online and for good reason so there is an I think it was I don't even know if it's a, a white paper what you want to call it but basically there's a
0: guy who wrote something that uh, here, let me find. This is from this is from the ACM. So this was a this was a paper, you know, or a, an article written for an ACM magazine for the Turing
2: Award that was won back in I think eighty four nineteen eighty four by Ken Thompson. All right. So now that I've given credit where credit is due, the the gist of this thing is you cannot trust software that you didn't completely write yourself, and so. Without going too deep into the article, more or less what it is, can you trust your compiler? Like what we talked about last episode was checking your compiler, right? And then we then we started talking about the nuances of maybe you shouldn't be checking it in source control. Maybe it's just something that goes into your artifact repository, whatever. But instead of, <coughs> you know, pulling your compiler from some remote source or, uh, you know, basically living off the developers compilers on their machines or whatever, put the compiler that you plan on using in some sort of repo that you can then use to do your builds. And this takes it a step further instead of, you know, Hey, it's not that everybody's builds differently. Anything can be compromised. So more or less what he's saying is if you didn't write it, you basically can't trust it. Now that's a really hard pill to swallow in today's world, right, with the fact that we're all coding, we're using compilers that we didn't write, we're
0: using... Compilers? Forget about the compilers. What about the 18,000 NPM packages that you have to pull down? And that's kind of what this is getting to. So it's sort
2: of crazy, this article... They, they go through this thing where you can inject something into some C code, right? But then he talks about, okay, well, then I could put it in a backdoor that would go through the C code and then rewrite your compiler and, and put some, some Trojan horses into your compiler, right? So the thing is this whole chain of things that can happen here are because you're basically relying on untrustable sources. And are you really? can you guarantee that a code scanning tool is going to find every problem? Some inconspicuous bug that was purposely put there or whatever, right? Like it's a, it's a, it's sort of, it's a really hard thing to do. Right. And, and I don't know that we talked about it last episode or maybe we did because it was in the same context as you know, yeah, you probably shouldn't be pulling from public npm packages if you're building and pushing to your production server there should probably be some sort of intermediate thing that's either scanning those or or caching the ones that you actually want to use that are stored in some local repo that you would then push to production like it it, it's not a small thing
0: i was going to bring up something you like you use some of the jfrog products to to do that for you right like you you bring in an artifactory to be that that uh cache or proxy that like could proxy out your your uh, request to like npm or nougat or whatever and then uh, you know through that service you could have then like a tied into x-ray for example uh, to, to do that kind of scanning so there' you know because jfrog has like a whole set of of tools that where they can do those types of scannings but to your point it's scanning so you have to trust that the scan is correct and it assumes that they find like a known problem and, and, you know, that has already been identified so that they have a signature to look for. But if it's like something that hasn't been, you know, uh, uh already discovered that's still sitting out there, then, you know, whatever you, it, it could still, but that's assuming now that you're going to pull your, you know, you're going to create some kind of private repository within your organization. And that's where you're going to put your GCC compiler to then pull it from there <clears throat> as a dependency in your build chain, which is, mm-hmm. is cool. I mean, it's, it's, you know, yeah, it's neat. But. Who
1: scans the scanners? Right. Right. I mean, yeah.
2: seriously, it, 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 when you think about it, it really just gives you a headache, right? <laughs> because it it's this whole notion of trust nobody. Well, you as a developer don't have infinite amounts of time and resources, right? Like, you can't write your own logger. That doesn't make sense. You can't. You can't write your own authentication thing, right? like you're gonna go um set up your own oauth server like there's there's so many things that we now interact with
0: that the reality is you gotta trust something until your organization keeps growing though right like like you know starting out amazon yeah you can't you can't do all that, but you know now the size of Amazon, yeah you can start writing some of those things yourself. Right, if yeah. you want, if you want to totally take this trust no one approach, and same with like a Google, right? Like at some point, you know, depending on your size, you have to like draw your line in the sand. Like, okay, I, yeah, I got to trust somebody because you know it's just me. But okay, now there's two of us. Now there's a hundred of. Us, now there's three thousand. There's two hundred thousand. Like at some point, the scale tips to where you can start to do that. But it also depends on like you know within your company culture. Like how near and dear is that, right? So like to a Google or an Amazon, they're heavy tech companies. You could see where they might be doing something like that on their own. But to like, you know, uh, I'm just trying to think of like a random company like uh what's that? Marsk or, you know, the shipping company, right? Do you know the Marsk? Yeah. Yeah. Uh I mean you see them all the time. I don't know. Are they a big tech company? Would they? I don't know. Maybe they do, but I kinda suspect that they wouldn't. They, you know, I kind of suspected they would be like a company and be like, yeah, we'll just take it for granted.
1: Yeah, I, I think I might write w- more suspect code accidentally than hackers that are slipping into my stuff anyway. So,
0: yeah, <laughs> I, it, I there
1: agree. There is with that. that
2: too. Yeah. So, at any rate, I, I mean, I've
0: seen just, just
1: code. So, oh. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, yeah, um, that, you know, real quick, uh, you remind me of a project I heard about. Uh, have you heard about Linux from scratch? No. So no. oh, it's a, a free book. You can, I think you can buy it on Amazon too. And it's a website too. It's, it's free uh, that walks through setting up your own Linux distro from scratch. And I mean, it's from scratch. I've looked at it a few times. So it's very low level. So you're going to be uh, working on your own drivers and all sorts of stuff. And it. it's a whole book that will guide you through this very, very low level. It just helps you really understand what's going on. And you learn a lot uh, about the processor. So I've heard, so I've been meaning to do it for years, but I haven't quite done it yet. But I just like the idea of like, really putting together your own kind of basic uh, Linux distro.
0: Man, that reminds me of a rant that I have. If you allow me. (laughs) We will, Uh, will allow for this, yes. Why is it that laptop manufacturers feel the need to include a keypad, a numpad on the keyboard? Why? Like, I feel like, Apple is one of the few that just got it right. That has the keyboard right. That's, that's part of what made their, their Mac so popular was everybody aligned to the keyboard back in the day. But if you notice, like it's just got, you know, there's no numpad on it and it's perfectly centered. And guess what's also centered along with that is their gigantic, you know, trackpad. Now, now don't, don't even iPad. talk to me about that. I'm Which not saying, I'm not track track saying I'm pad. a fan of the gigantic trackpad, but it is <laughs> kind of humorous. But, but, but the point is it's all centered, right? Like, you know, and, and so many of them, Aren't they like include these numpads on it which now the whole keyboard has to be left justified to the to the orientation of the laptop and you're like outlaw what does this have to do about Linux? I'll tell you why it has to do something with Linux because I've been considering like oh you know maybe I'll get a new laptop and I've been looking at the System 76 laptops and specifically there's the I don't know how this is supposed to be pronounced but I'm going to try like uh, I'm going to call it the Oryx Pro series uh, which, you know, looks pretty nice, but it's got the, uh, the numpad on it. So everything, including the trackpad, are left justified, which means your left hand has like not a lot of space on, on it, but the right hand has like all kinds of freedom and room to move about. It's, it's ridiculous. Oh, it bugs me so much. So I do Sorry. want to point something out Random because you said over.
2: you've made this argument in the past too, right? About the centered trackpad, and I was like, "Is it?" Because I remember you were looking at the MSI Stealth G sixty five, right? GS sixty five at one point, and you were like, "Dude, the trackpad is not centered," and that drives you crazy. Yep. It is not centered on the Max either. What? So if you look at that.
0: It is not completely centered dude, to the what thing. What are you talking about? It might be no, like dude. millimeters off, but that is but it, but,
2: but it's, so space so bar. it's centered, but not to the keyboard, not to the space bar.
0: No, and no, no. Okay, okay. okay. Whoa, 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 whoa. When when I was asking about the centered, I'm not talking about like space allotment for the keyboard, or I mean for the for the I'm sorry for the space bar. I'm talking about centered to the the whole device. Oh, I want it centered to the space bar. No, because, because, okay. So the, the the, okay. But the deal there though, that I'm willing to forgive is that like other companies will put uh, various keys there to the right of the space bar. And so they might take away some of the size of the space bar in order to accommodate those keys. And so I'm like, yeah, I get it. Cause I'm probably going to like, you know, it's fine. Like that part I'm willing to forgive.
2: Yeah. So it's funny. I was actually on the opposite end of the spectrum. I wanted a number pad on mine. And so when I got my gigabyte, I, I explicitly wanted that
0: and I found that i never use it. So yeah, it might as well not be there. It's just a waste, man. And that's, that's my point. That's why I don't like it. It's like, I'm not for the, for heavy crunching, number crunching things. Like I'm not going to use that on a laptop anyways So I'd probably connect to a full size keyboard anyways. So why put it there? You're just wasting space. I would rather have like everything ergonomically, you know, fit better because, you know, like that, that MSI that you talked about, like you couldn't type on it without touching the trackpad and moving the mouse and ran and like randomly selecting other things. Now, like after five minutes of typing on this thing, I was like, oh man, that's sad because I so badly wanted to buy that. It was a nice machine. But the, the Dell, that's one of the reasons why I like the Dell laptops is the, those uh Precisions because they don't include the Numpad. Mm. All right. Sorry. You started with Linux, and that's what blew me off. <laughs> Linux went to trackpads. That- <laughs> well, it went to System76 is what immediately right. – because right. I've been strongly considering a System76, but I'm like, they got the wrong keyboard. I can't do it. Yep. So, sorry, let's talk about DevOps. (laughs) Let's do it. Let's do it.
1: All right, so picking up where we left off, uh, now we're talking about continuously building, testing, and integrating uh, our code environments. And I wanted to point out here that two of the co-authors of the book, like uh, people frequently mention Gene Kim because of his involvement with Phoenix Project and the Unicorn Project, but uh, two of the co-authors actually literally wrote the book on continuous delivery. It's Literally called that. So it's pretty awesome to see them uh, being involved in in these chapters. And I mean, the whole book, they're co authors. Did you say their names? Uh, No. Jez Hubble. Why did you do this to me?
2: (laughs) Oh, that's why you didn't say the name.
1: Jez Hubble and David Farley. (laughs) Farley. All right. Okay. Apologize. I'm so bad with last names. Uh, So. uh, How? Uh, so we're, we're basically talking about continuously building, testing, and integrating. And I think um, even just a couple of years ago, when the book came out, these were still kind of more novel ideas. I think most people now kind of are familiar with it. But basically, we're talking about building and testing processes that that are running constantly on some other system, like a build server or some sort of online, you know, cloudy service somewhere. And um, by doing this, it makes sure that we understand and have. Uh, codified all over dependencies. So they're they're written down, they're checked in. The build server knows how to put it together and it's not somebody's uh, special laptop or the computer over there near the water cooler that has to do the builds. Oh, uh, I remember think, those days? Oh, oh yes.
0: You <laughs> it was that long ago. Like, you had, like that was your intro to DevOps is you, you technically had a build server, but it was a build server. And it yep. was a big deal that you built that build server and when there was a problem with that build server you felt it uh aka
2: team city hey did you install the dependency you needed what version of visual studio have you got what version of ms build is installed like
0: yeah oh i wasn't even thinking about team city but yeah the you know that that's an example sure but but that i think is like way down the road though of what i was describing oh you, you were talking back in the day yeah, like like you're like literally, there was the one box.
1: <laughs> you know, uh, so Jenkins and, and before I used Hudson briefly. That was the first build server I've server ever heard of. I did. Was there a build server before Hudson? I have no idea. Yeah, I don't know. I think like before, like Hudson kind of came around not too long after Java. I think it actually was a, a Sun project. But, uh, that was the first one I heard of. And, and before that was basically, you, I mean, you weren't working with Java. You were like doing make. But as soon as Java came out, man, if you ever compiled Java by hand, uh, it's super, super annoying how you have to do. You have to specify all the arguments to get all the stuff in the class path. You have to get all your libs. Like it's you end up with these like insane, crazy long commands that you have to run. And if you ever took like Java in college in the 1990s, <laughs> <laughs> then you know what I'm talking about because it was all like Notepad and JVAC. Yeah.
0: I mean, that stuff still exists. It's just that it's being yeah. automated for you there. Like if you ever look at some of the output from say an MS build, it's no better than what you're describing for Java. No. It's just, no, it's done for you.
2: Oh, check this out. So I, I looked up what was the original and I haven't found that, but what I did find is Jenkins... Was originally Hudson.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think it uh, forked because of some sort of licensing thing. They had to change the name. And for I, th- I want to say that for a while there, you would still see like references to Hudson, like code and library and stuff. Like, oh, you still do? Code. Oh, really? Nice. Yeah.
0: <laughs> it's in there, really. I've still seen some. I've still seen some references in in Jenkins, in like documentation for Jenkins, where it's like, okay, you know, so in Hudson it was called this or whatever. Wow,
2: that's cool.
1: Uh, and one that's last recent. thing here is, oh, go
0: ahead. I was saying and that's recently.
1: Yeah, that's that's crazy. Uh, nothing ever goes away. No. Uh, the final point they had here is that it ensures repeatable deployments and configuration management. I wanted to point out one other thing that uh, they didn't specifically mention, but I think that the whole kind of build server revolution made it easier for to do more complicated things, like you know JavaScript builds is one example, but also just on like local computers, like by codifying that stuff and having to like really explicitly list out how to build yourself build your stuff in like repeatable you know algorithmic uh, instructions also benefited local development because it means that you also had those same instructions for doing local builds on your computer and it wasn't like up to the readme or you know the wiki or the the person in the cubicle next to you to like teach you how to build
0: okay well two things uh one is it really pronounced codify and not codify uh Okay. but two. <laughs> everything. I'm like, why are we talking about fish? Um, <laughs> but, but, uh, Oh man. Now I forgot the other point. Um, where you were saying, Oh, the, the, the I, I've had this thought where like, it's all, we're always building like, not my thought, but we're always building on the shoulders of giants. Right. So like every little improvement we make <clears throat> as a society you know a, a, you know as a as a group of people like allows us to do you know uh, to to automate something and now that is no longer a problem that we worry about right so so going back to what you were saying with in you know the 90s uh running java c and like having to manually cobble together these command lines right that's no longer a thing now cuz now we have uh, a variety of different uh you know, build tools specific for Java. So like, you know, Maven, for example, or Gradle or whatever. And, and now, you know, add onto that build servers that, you know, so you don't worry about those command line things because that's been automated for you. And now we have, we can put build servers together to automate builds. So that's one less thing that we worry about. And now in this crazy world, we can be like, Oh, Hey, here's a Docker file that represents the Jenkins, you know, environment that you would need. And here's the Jenkins file to run in that Docker uh, environment to build it and very, and run all the tests and everything. It's so like, it's, we just keep building and, and like, you know, it, it's like, imagine if you were to start, uh, building an anthill, right? And you just keep piling on a little bit more dirt and a little bit more dirt and pretty soon we're going to reach the moon, right? Yeah, we're
2: not far off there. And and I did look up the word. It can, did you too, Joe? Yeah. Okay. I couldn't read the pronunciation. Am I wrong? I'm like, whoa. Oh, come on. It could be both. It could be either codify or codify.
0: It depends so. on if you're talking about fish there, right? <laughs>
1: uh, or Cape as. Cod, maybe. <laughs> yes.
0: So uh, <laughs> he,
1: he was right both ways. Uh. Always. <laughs> all right. And yeah, so the idea is that once your uh, your changes actually make it into source control then the packages and binaries are created only once and then those same packages are reused at the end of the pipeline. That's if you got your pipeline, you know, done right which, you know, <laughs> it's I hard. Think-
2: that's, yeah, it's hard, but it's what you want. And we, we touched on this in the previous episode where the whole point of that is if you build those binaries the one time, those same binaries are used in development, QA, prod everywhere, right? And, and I know Outlaw is a huge fan of this. He's probably said it a million times since we started this podcast is eat your own dog food, right? You want to be testing the same thing everywhere. Right. If if you can have your development environment as close to production as possible, that's ideal because then you don't
0: have surprises when that thing makes it out into the wild. The reality is, though, it's also a a measure of like how mature is your uh, your development environment, right? Oh, totally. Because you know, y- you we say like, hey, you only want to build these packages and binaries once, and then you know you're going to use them throughout, right? I mean when you kind of hear that you kind of think of like okay that means that you're going to like build a package you're going to push it up to like an an internal npm be that like maybe we mentioned artifactory earlier maybe that's what you're using or maybe you're using azure devops as your your package feed <clears throat> you know whatever uh there's like you know my get, my nuget or something like that uh but but sometimes sometimes you know managing all those dependencies is a total pain and so you might just be like you know what we'll just rebuild every time Right. We'll rebuild all of those dependencies every time. And, and that's just a sign of like, well, how mature is, is it? Right. So yeah, I mean, it, it it's a painful reality, but it, it goes I mean, one, back to what we were talking about earlier about sometimes it's like, okay, you know, w- w- how much, how much can I bite off right now? You know, and you can't beat yourself up about it if it's not this perfect world.
2: So check this out. One thing I want to point out is we've talked about this stuff and I think in a lot of our conversation, we've been talking about, sort of teams, right? Like there's teams of people that are helping manage pipelines and all that. This isn't something that you have to have 20, 30, 40 people or a thousand people in order to make this useful. And I bring this up. So I was listening to an episode of the MS dev show. There was a guy who basically wrote some sort of stock, not a screener application, but he wrote something, right? And he did it in his spare time. Well, in the conversation that he had with Carl and, and Jason, He was talking about the fact that every time a commit's put in, it automatically builds, tests, deploys, right? And check this out. Because he's doing this on the side, because this is something that he's not got all day to spend on, setting up that automation for him enables him to be way more aggressive and agile as he moves on. Because instead of spending his time trying to build something and test it and make sure it's working, that stuff's happening for him. And so he can focus on the features that he's trying to do. Right. So that's, I want to say that when I listened to that episode, it was just a two man show, but, but having these bits in place and learning how to make these things happen can really free you up to, to work your magic on the features
0: and not focus on the non-functional things that, that consume a ton of time. I think Jay Z made a, a comment similar to that in the last episode that by, by, embracing devops and automating some of these things and and putting these practices into place that yeah it's really it you should want to do it because it's freeing up your time to to be more productive to do other things
1: i never said oh man such a waste i wish i never automated that build (laughs) oh man i miss writing my java c commands lines (laughs) (laughs) yeah exactly exactly So, what, what are the results of this? What does it mean for our culture? Because remember, this, the whole book is basically like a a high level kind of philosophy of what can happen and what should happen and why you should start moving in this direction and what it means for, you know, competing and uh, the changes that you have to make as an organization. And, uh, in addition to setting up this build server, there's a couple other things you need to do to, like, as, as a human in order to make this thing work and be valuable. And, uh, we got three here. So you need to maintain reliable automated tests that truly validate deployability. Because it's pretty scary to like slop some bits up there and you don't know if they work. You don't know if they're right. Nobody knows. Nobody knows when stuff broke. is also a big problem if you don't have good tests. Something's been up there. Is it the thing been broken for six months or six months for six minutes? You know, it dramatically affects the scope of things you have to look at to figure out what went wrong. Uh, you need to stop the production pipeline when validation fails. Have you heard about the Andon core and the new me plants and all that stuff? Mm-hmm. So yeah. If you haven't, it's just the idea that you stop the whole assembly line as soon as um, something goes wrong because it's faster to fix it at the time than it is to try and retro fix it after the fact. I think they mentioned, though, that in the book that
0: that was something, a concept that specifically started at
1: Toyota. Yep. Yep. Um, yeah, yeah. The Numi plant was the, the like the one. It was like a you know Business Journal 1980 that like blew up. That like everyone refers to andon cords, Numi plants, Toyota, Um because uh, at the time like American companies were basically <clears throat> sending things down the line, and the philosophy was like never stop the the assembly line. And then at the end, they would have like a big QA process that would look at all the cars and then send these over here to have this fixed or that fixed or look at this or look at that. Or there's a note on this one to check out the steering wheel, or whatever. And then people would have to go to those car stores and like half reassemble them to go fix the steering wheel that was crooked or to the left too much or whatever. And, uh, like the, the kind of the revolution was like Toyota came in, did a couple of plants in America and, um, they got, some, there was kind of like a weird, I don't know the full story, but there was almost like a weird, like kind of like exchange student thing going on with like the American car companies and Toyota at the time. And so there was like some American people and some, uh, some Japanese Toyota people were working in the same plans and they were just, uh, there was uh, initially some confusion it sounded like over like how things were done and how they were different. And then people started seeing the benefits of the way that Toyota was doing things. And, uh, yeah, it was just basically by stopping the assembly line, which was like horrible, you know, like the last thing you would ever do at the time in most of the factories, to stop and fix one thing on the card and move this thing to the left six inches or whatever, fix the, the problem as soon as it happened, had dramatic effects because it had so much less fixing to do at the end.
0: Yeah, and it in uh, in the book they also caught out like you're you're making the entire team aware. Like yep. when you stop that production line, everybody can jump in and and you know, oh, I see what the problem is or oh I'm aware or you know I can help. Or whatever, yep. like you're, you're able to get more hands and, and, you know, to help out. And so like, if you were able to bring this into your, your, your software, uh, production, you know, or pipeline in the same kind of ability, you know, like, Hey, your commit has broken, broken. You know, the trunk now. Now we can't build anything like, you know, now everybody's aware. Right. As soon as everybody pulls in the latest code, they're like, oh, now I can't build. And so now you get more eyes that are trying to help you
1: You know, figure out what's the new what's the problem that got introduced. Yeah. And you can imagine why companies hated this initially. Right. Like imagine if uh, the first thing that happened on the car uh, ends up stopping the plant. And so the first car of the first day is stopped at step one of 193, and you've got 95% of the plant that's just sitting there waiting. And so that's a horrifying thought that you've got all these people that aren't working for who knows how long until they fix whatever that first issue was. And that's such, such a crazy thought. But the the overall effect is like, yeah, sure, maybe that first couple of cars or first couple of things is going to be slower, but people are going to you know notice when the assembly line stops and what causes it. And they're going to fix those problems at the root. And they're going to stop making those mistakes that stop those lines because it's still terrible to stop the line. It's just less terrible than letting it go through.
2: Yeah. And the end product was a much better product, right? Because it was basically being QA'd throughout the entire thing, right? That was the whole point of it. And it was the actual physical cable, this and-on cord that anybody could go
0: pull to stop the entire thing. And it's it's easy too to think about it from the respects of like, you know, continuing along with the car production, like you could, you could see where like the complexity of what you're producing can also like significantly matter. Right. Like, like you, you could think about this from the point of view of like picture Ford in the early days of the Ford motor company. Right. And, and like creating model T's, right. Like those cars by comparison to today's car, you, you might be easy. You could easily think to yourself like, Oh, well, I mean, if there's a problem in, you know, that there's so few moving parts anyway, it's like if there's one little problem, it's so easy to get to. Everything's like wide open. There's so much space to to work in and whatever. Nowadays on a modern car, you want to like get under the hood of the car. There's literally no room. You got to take the whole front end apart. So, you know, the point is, is like, you know, because there's so much more complexity to those cars now and, and it is so much more difficult to get it to get to some of those pieces. I mean, just to change a light bulb on some car or a headlight on some cars, you have to take a tire off just because of the way the lights wrap around. So the point is, is like you could see where we didn't used to think about that sort of thing in the days of Ford. Right. And that like to Joe's point about like how critical that would have been to stop the whole production line because there's an issue with the light bulb, but in, you know, a more modern car, it's far easier to fix that problem before you finished assembling it and before that tire is on to just be, like, Oh, you forgot to put the light bulb in or you put the wrong one in, right? It's a, it's a lot easier to, to fix that at
1: that time. And, yeah, and it enabled us code. to make different kinds of cars, things that yeah. would have been unthinkable.
2: Yeah, totally. And it's the same thing with our code, right? Our code has gotten drastically <laughs> more complex than it was 20, 30 years ago, right? Like it's, it's not even.
0: You can't even compare the two. I mean, to that end though, really, uh, we've kind of talked about this, but maybe not to this exact point, but, um, you know, we can only imagine what it was like for software developers, you know, 40, 50 years ago, right? Whereas, like, Oh, you wanted a double linked list. Guess what, buddy? There's no library. You got to go write it. You had to know these patterns. You had to know these data structures. Now there's so many things that even we take for granted. And we've been doing this for a while now. Imagine like the kids who are coming out of school today, like how they can easily, or maybe they don't even have to go to school for it because there's so many online resources. Imagine the things that they can take for granted because now it's like, oh, well, there's so many different libraries you know, if you if you wanted a doubly linked list for your JavaScript, you know, there, you know, just pull down doubly dot, uh, you know, from npm and you know, or what, I'm sure there's a doubly, but you know, <laughs> yeah, what I, you know, what I'm saying like there's 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 like so many other utilities and libraries out there that you don't have to. It's easy for you to not focus on data structures or some of these algorithms or even forget them if you have. Uh, you know, no, no, no pointing fingers at us. If you have ever studied these things, because, you know, there are, there are so many utilities and libraries already out there that it's, it's far easier for you to use and you don't have to worry about doing that. And, and so, you know, now we're just talking about it from like a DevOps perspective, but yeah, it's all the same, same kind yeah. of concepts.
1: I want to throw two things out there real quick. Um, One is uh, the, Pat Flynn from smart passive income did an episode a long while back about small, small batches. And he talked about, um, wedding, uh, how he did, uh, have you heard this on? I have, yeah. Yeah. Uh, wedding invites with his wife. And so the idea was like, okay, we'll fold all the cards and I'll, like, next person will put all the cards in. Next person will do all this. So they kind of like batched it out. So they were able to just like f- do all the folding at one time and then do all the next step and then all the signing and then all the stamping. And you get to the end, and you're like, oh crap, I was supposed to put, uh, the sticker in each one of them. And so it's like you could end up in these situations where you've got a big mess up. That's really hard to fix and you don't know it until the very end of the process. Whereas if you had just done things quote unquote slower and done one thing at a time, then you would have discovered that organizational problem with the first uh, invite and you would have fixed it and you would have been good and you would have saved so much time. And uh, it actually, um, this, the one, one last example I wanted to give is, um, Back when I went to school, back in the stone ages, uh, when you get in trouble, sometimes they have you, like, write sentences, you know, when you're young and, like, learning to write. So, it'd be like, you'd have to write, uh, I will not play Game Boy in class, like, a hundred times or whatever. Have you Did ever done the thing you like- watch
0: too much The Simpsons that they had yeah, to do yeah, exactly. the Bart Simpson punishment?
1: Yeah, yeah. He's doing it the wrong way. So, like, you know, part of it is, like, they want to punish you, but the other part is they want you to, you know, develop your writing skills. So, <laughs> well, of course, what I would do, being a young programmer, is, like, eyes all the way down 50 times. <laughs> And then W's all the way down. Right. And you think you're so smart. And then when you look at it, when you're like even halfway done, and there's like this gigantic wave going on, like you, there's no doubt in your mind what the person did. Like there's no hiding it. And you're just like, well, I guess I didn't learn that lesson.
0: (laughs) I do recall those. I'm just trying to imagine like, what
1: could Jay-Z have possibly done that he would have to write something on Bringing Nintendo power to school or, you know, something. (laughs) Nintendo Power, yeah,'m sneaking the turtles into my desk, did you see speaking of Nintendo if we
0: could go short we we don't go on enough tangents. Have you ever noticed that <laughs> <laughs> We never have did you guys see that uh Nintendo uh not Nintendo – uh Lego is introducing a nintendo uh n e s set no, oh. oh God, really? okay, let me see if I can find this uh Nintendo that's
1: in the show notes, folks, yeah. Oh so, whoa! It's way cooler than I thought.
0: Yeah, it is. It is really cool. Here, here's a link to it. I'll put this in. I'll hear a bunch of dings. Um, uh, yeah, just continue. Why you? All right. So, it's a wow. it's a Lego <laughs> Nintendo set. Whoa, playing dude, Super Mario Brothers. Yes.
1: Yeah. Yeah, and not just the NES. <laughs> Isn't That's that awesome? awesome? Yeah, game. Oh, it's even the old school TV with the click, it's click, the click. TV, that's amazing. Yeah. Oh man, the TVs to have dial for like contrast or whatever. Yeah. Oh yeah. Red, green tint. <laughs> it's
0: got an antenna. Click, click, click. Yeah. So I'll include a link to this in the uh, the show notes. But yeah, this is awesome. Like if you look at the back of the TV, there's like the connections. Wow, You're, this is amazing. You know what? You know what this
2: reminds me of, man. We're gonna have to go go back in the past here. I said something to my kids one day about tapes, you know, ah, I used to listen to tapes or I'd make a mixtape, right? For, for the girl that I was, you know, currently, uh, swooning over or whatever. For your mom. Like, yep. For your mom. They're like, <laughs> yeah, they're, <laughs> exactly. No, this was before their time. Um, but, but they're like tapes. And I was like, Oh man, my kids, not only do they have the glory of Netflix and no commercials, right? They did never have to fast-forward to find the end of a song, man. Like, that actually bothered me. I I was sort of angry about it for a minute. Like, I feel like I lost part of my youth. Fast-forwarding, rewinding, and, oh, is it on side A or side B or whatever?
0: Like, man. Well, not that I I ever had to do this, but I've heard – that you know there was a time where people would like listen to the radio waiting for their favorite <laughs> oh, song so that they they were at the ready to record it on tape you know yeah. just waiting for it, and they would never get the beginning just right it was always right. like you know a second or two off yeah totally no i don't yeah. know about it per from personal experience but from what yeah, i've heard that was just
1: awful
2: yeah because by the time you were listening to the radio spotify was already a thing right so <laughs>
1: Yeah, yeah, it was so sad with the tapes too because you had to really appreciate because every time you listened to it, it got worse, mm-hmm. right? Same with the vinyl. Oh man, this, the, all right,
2: yeah, we, we yeah. have completely come off the rails. All right, that was amazing, guys. Uh,
1: stop going, going off go on tangents. Back of the-
0: <laughs> what was that? <laughs> I said, Stop going off on tangents.
1: Oh, right, yeah. Oh, yeah. All right. So, uh, integrate performance testing into the test suite. So, um, the idea is that you should likely build the performance testing environment, uh, at the beginning of the project so it can be used throughout. So this is something that, um, is still kind of, I don't know, controversial, but it seems to me like a lot of people want to put off performance testing to the end. And I think it, you can make a strong argument for performance testing at the end of a cycle rather than the beginning because what are you testing in the beginning? But, um, uh, they're making the argument here that, It's harder to get that stuff up and running at the uh, beginning. And uh, a lot of times if you don't set up your performance testing and get it incorporated into your CI, CD pipeline, then you just never do it. I'm so guilty about this one. Yeah, me too. Me too. Well, I've I've made that argument. That's why I know it.
2: (laughs) Well, it's the next part that actually kind of makes you think that you really should do it at the beginning. And this is the whole notion that The only way for you to find out if you're making measurable improvements is if you're actually measuring it. So if you never had any performance tests in in the first place that you were logging those results somewhere, how do you know if you're doing anything that will scale or will improve as you do? Or how do you know when you introduce some code that made it run two times slower, right? Like it's it's that kind of thing.
0: I think depending on like what you're, you're using as a test suite there though, um, like even in, even in, uh, Team City, right? Like you could track, you could take, um, you could keep statistics on, on builds and tests and things like that, right? Well, this isn't, this isn't build performance. Yeah, but these are performance tests though, right? And so I'm saying like you could keep track of tests, yeah, of stats of tests over time. That's slow. Yeah. So, I mean, depending on like you, well, my point is, is that depending on your environment, it, you might have the ability to do some of that logging easier than you might think, right? It, it, it might already be available to you and, and you don't realize that it's there.
2: I guess it would depend on whether or not you were testing something that was actually a performance thing, right? Like if we're talking about unit tests, unit tests shouldn't be doing anything that's necessarily a performance type benchmark, right? Like how many threads are running or whatever. So yes, you totally. Could, you could be testing the output of some method or whatever you're trying to test with your unit test. But
0: well, what I mean though by that is like you could envision a world where like you have a team city or a Jenkins or whatever set up and there's a pipeline specifically set up to to run a set of tests that are all about like, hey, let's spawn five thousand threads and beat this web API and see what happens, right? Like let's build the code. Oh, the code built. Did it test? It test. Okay. Deploy it out to this performance environment and now let's bang away at it and see what happens. Yeah. True.
1: I mean, can you imagine Amazon or Google not performance testing as part of their pipeline for mission critical areas? Like, I'm like, sure whatever like the true core of the search engine for Google gets updated, they got to run a battery of performance tests at it to see if it gets significantly slower, because uh, you know that could bring the whole thing down and have cascading problems. Um, so, yeah, hundred twenty thousand yeah. of them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. So it's really important. Yeah, it's, that's something I'm really guilty of slacking on for sure, and I always wish I had it, and I never want to do it. But also, it's not really fun. So, well, this is another one
0: of those things that is like once you take the time to automate it that first time, like you take that yeah. hit the first time. So true, not fun. But if you can then automate it, it it really comes. It becomes a point though of like, so going to your point about it being hard to do up front is it's kind of like well you have to know well, what are you going to what are you going to test like like I mentioned some web APIs that you're going to like beat up right, okay do those already exist? No. Well, then how can you do it up front? <laughs> right. <Yeah. laughs> you know? So, I mean, right. Yeah. They're, they're, this is, and this is also just generally like where test driven development can be hard for so many people, myself included. Cause it's like, I don't know what the thing is yet. How do I know what tests to write? You know?
1: Yep. Yeah. Uh, it's hard. Coding is hard. Everything about it is hard. <laughs> I quit. <laughs> it really <laughs> quits. Just- <laughs>
0: <laughs> ah, all right well look, why don't we just move on then since joe quit and we'll talk about enabling eh, enable and practice continuous integration
1: yeah and so this is just kind of bringing it back to the people again like what can you do in order to like truly get the most bang out of this and basically it's the thing, same thing as we said if you can keep things in small batches small commits do and on chord style development where you find problems early and you stop problems early and you stop things from piling on, then you're optimizing for team productivity over individual productivity. So yeah, it stinks to be a developer and you just need to stink something and you know it's going to work and you don't want to have to write performance tests. You don't want to have to write unit tests. and You don't want to have to deal with all this other stuff. The thing is that you might be right and maybe that is easier for this one little thing. But when you kind of look back on the year or two years or 10 years or however long that code's going to live, and you look at all these little things that were just, you know, easy and probably fine, then you've got a real problem and you've got this beast that you can't reckon with.
0: Yeah, that's a good point though, that was that you kind of like quickly glossed over there. With, like that um that's kind of like a central theme in some of this uh discussion in the book was like favoring team productivity over individual productivity. And that there are things that you would think like Oh, well, as an individual, like, I don't want to take my time to do that. Like, I'm going to lose, you know, my ability to be productive. But it's like, yeah, okay, maybe for like, you know, a day, a week, whatever. But in the long run, that small amount of effort that you're going to make is going to reap huge benefits for you and the remaining, rem- the rest of the team that are going to more than make up for it.
2: Yeah. And anecdotally, I mean, again, I mentioned it last time we've seen anytime you're trying to introduce stuff like this, you get a lot of pushback. Like it's natural for that to happen. You'll get pushback for that reason too, right? Like, Hey, we need this feature out. You're slowing things down. But if you truly fight for it, you will improve it like massively. You can't even measure it. It's to the point to where once somebody has it, they can't live without it anymore. Right? Like, Oh, well, these builds are happening. What do we got to do to get a build out now? Oh, well, somebody's going to have to go do this, this, and this. Okay, can we get the build server back up? Like that's it will actually change the way people view this stuff if you can
0: get that into an environment. Yeah. if, If you're in a small shop that and you don't have like any kind of automation in there and you automate the build for your boss, I promise you, he will be forever in your debt. He'll never want to go back or she will never want to go back to a world where, uh, you know, they had to manually type something in, or manually, you know, go off and and download the code or whatever in order to build it. Yep. Even if it yeah. it was something as simple as like running a script, right? Like if you can make it a repeatable process that where it's like already done and ready for them, like at their, they're like, oh, uh, hey, I, I want to get the latest. Oh, it's already done. Can I just download it. Oh, great. Yep. So the next
2: one up we have here, uh, so we said the small batch optimizes for the team productivity, feature branches optimize for individual productivity.
1: Yeah, and so the argument here is basically that feature branches are are, uh, DevOps smell, if you will. So the idea that uh, feature branches, if you're not familiar, it's basically the idea that like, hey, we're rolling out uh, customer service 2.0. So we're going to make a branch customer service CS 2.0 2.0 and we're all going to work in here for three months and then when it gets closer to being ready, we'll merge it in and then we'll deploy it. And so we'll kind of keep this stuff on its own little island until we're ready to move it in. And the argument that you're really making there that that's kind of central to that is that I don't want to mess with anyone else's changes. I don't want anyone else bricking me. I don't want to deal with any merge conflicts right now because I just need to get this stuff done. I'm going to go go in a hidey hole, You know, going to focus on my stuff and then I'll come up when I'm ready and then we'll get it merged in. But the, the, that's very much a large batch argument. And it's optimizing for the people working on that product and not the organization as a whole. And so that's one of the things where if you're doing that, then you're optimizing for individual productivity at the behest of team productivity. And uh, for an organization, that's no bueno. Yeah. Oh. And uh, yeah, I didn't have to say all that. The, the, we have notes right here. So it requires <laughs> painful integration periods, uh, which is often invisible work that's really tough to estimate. Like, how long does it take to get things truly working together? Uh, I don't know. Or it could uh, just be it, like, how, how long do you spend just trying to merge? Yeah. Oh, yeah, that too. Yeah, absolutely. Brutal. Yeah. Uh, how many times do we think something was done and let's just realize that nothing worked end to end, you know? A lot of times people will joke and like kind of blame me unit tests and the, you know, like we talked about those memes, unit tests versus production tests. But like a lot of it, it's not so much the problem with the tests as it was that people were going off and working in silos and then expecting that things would just work together. Also, this is harder for the pipelines. You know, if someone says like, hey, we're doing CS 2.0, we need a new environment to spin up that is just going to have our stuff. And there's going to be you know, someone in the background kind of setting up the environment and kind of keeping all this stuff around. But it's ultimately throwaway work because that stuff's going to disappear in a few months when it gets merged in. And same with that environment. There's just all this stuff that you have to set up just for once. But a lot of times the developers don't have to feel that pain because there's some sort of operational team that's handling that.
2: Yeah. Like uh, I know Outlaw got hit with these pains in the past. Like you have a feature branch. Oh, well, we now need a website so this thing can be deployed to this website on the server and we need, we need another database over here. So like it's, it's, it's not just, Hey, build this branch. It's now, Hey, you have to build this and know of all these other deployment features out here to make this thing run. Right. So it's a whole lot of repetitive work just to get one thing set up for this temporary branch.
0: And yep. I think it's fair to point out though, but when we talk about these feature branches, we're we're talking about like long lived right branches. Features. Not a week. Yeah. Not a week. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Not a week. Like because like, you might be thinking like, but hey, wait a minute. Yeah, we're we're talking about branches that hang around for a while, like weeks, yeah, months, months, right kind yeah. of time frame before you get merged in. And that's why it becomes so painful because there's so
1: much accumulation that's happened in various places, and now you're trying to like merge that in you have been somewhere with like a feature branch, and you're working on it for six months or whatever, you know, the new version of the system, and like you're not pulling master because you know or, or uh, dev, you know whatever you call it, you're not you're pulling your main line because you don't want to break anything, you want a stable environment. Oh, but you need to pull in someone's changes mm-hmm. to test with something. Oh, but oh, but that brought in other stuff that you weren't ready to deal with, and so now oh now you gotta right no no nope all that stuff is harder to deal with because you're bringing it all in at once. And you've got your mind on this one little thing that you need, and now you've got to deal with all this other stuff. So rather than bringing it in piecemeal and dealing with it piece by piece, you're, you know, comp- you're paying the compounded interest on it.
0: It is fair to point out though, because even in like you know, that uh, clarification on the feature branch though, and we said like, hey, you know, Alan, Alan, you specifically caught out like, hey, you know, it could be a week. Like according to the book though, Mm-mm. yeah, you you're you're merging back into the main yeah. trunk every day. Daily, if you finish what you're working on, man. And if you're not yeah. finished, then you have it protected in such a way that it won't matter.
1: Meh. Yeah, I have a hard time with that
0: too. Yeah, yeah, I, 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 I agree with you. Like, I,
1: I have, a, I. That's a tough pill for me as well. I'll yeah. tell you though, everything that we've just said in the last hour here are all things that I've argued against <laughs> at one point <laughs> in my career. <laughs> so maybe they're right about this too. I don't know. Meh. I've argued, I I remember arguing against Git because I, my argument uh, against switching to Git was that Git solved a bunch of problems I didn't have. I wanted a centralized server. I don't care about branches. Why would, like, we shouldn't be branching anyway. It's painful. (laughs) And it's just going to complicate things.
0: Yeah, we had a, I had a friend who, uh, who was an early advocate for Git, but we were a mercurial shop and I'm like, yeah, I don't, I don't get it. Like, who cares, man? Like, this is good enough.
1: Right? Whatever. I don't care. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Now look at it. I'm wrong about everything before I'm right about it. (laughs) Uh, Sometimes I go, I flip flop. I go back. Who knows? You're crazy like that. We just just don't know. I don't measure my coffee.
2: (laughs) That's right. We live in chaos
0: and enjoy it.
1: Yeah. Oh, uh, go ahead.
0: I mean, why Why you got to throw me under the bus about that? Like <laughs> It's just so much fun. Why was that necessary?
1: <laughs> oh, man. It's just adding a little – I'm bringing the chaos to your life so you can enjoy it too. Oh. That's right. Okay. Yeah. Well, I want to talk about integration complexity instead. Yeah. So, we, we talked about feature branches. Uh we didn't really say that. Like, if you've got one feature branch for customer service 2.0, you probably have other feature branches going on from other teams at the same time. And so, like, we look at one slice of it. But you think from a kind of a the mainline perspective, you've got six, eight, ten, fourteen. You know, who who knows how many feature branches that are out there doing this stuff at one time? Like, there that's a lot of stuff that people have to keep in their heads and have to know about. And what that means is stuff is getting dropped. Balls are getting dropped. People are forgetting to tell people about relevant changes and stuff is just getting lost and messed up all over the place. And it's just the net re- uh, net result is that the more feature branches that you have out there, the more you have those long lived branches, the more you got to deal with these pants. And that's why they argue for checking in daily, <laughs> which I'm thinking way, about when we talk about these feature branches, um, you
0: might think like, Oh, maybe this isn't me. Like, But if you go back to episode 90 when we talked about various uh Git workflows, uh one of the one one of the strategies that we talked about was like imagine if you tried to keep um how did it work now? You you wanted to have all your your different versions in parallel and you wanted to be able to like merge in from one to the next. So so you make your change in uh, the, your trunk, and you want to like merge it into the various releases in order to correct the problem. You know, at, for every future release, do you remember that conversation? It was the Git flow, yeah, way, wasn't it? Yeah. Okay. yeah, yeah, yeah. And and like the hassles that would come with that, like it would get exponentially harder. Like the first, the first merge was painful. Now you've gotten past that, and you want to like basically imagine if you had like versions A, B, C, right? And, and let's say that A is the oldest branch and C is the newest branch. So you found a bug that goes all the way back to version A. So you, you, you make your bug fix there. Okay. That's not so bad. Now you want to merge the changes from A to bring it forward into B. Okay. Well, there's some conflicts there. Some things changed. Oh, this page doesn't work like that anymore, whatever. So you, you now come past that one. Okay. Fine. That one, that one wasn't so bad. Now you get to version C. Right. Now you're carrying all the baggage of A and B as you bring it forward. Right. And it just kept getting more and complex as you have more versions that you're trying to maintain simultaneously. Like that's an example of this feature branch kind of problem. You know, those are, those are in that case, those are long lived branches where you're trying to maintain multiple versions concurrently and it, it can get painful.
2: And they say that the complexity scales exponentially, right? So it's not just three times harder because you have three branches. It's probably freaking
0: ten times harder. And, and and that's true. And and there's likely, uh, you know, your change is the only thing that that was brought in. You know, that might have been your your bug that you fixed might not be the only one that was made in either A or B. That's then being brought forward into C and then what happens is like there's changes. You aren't even the author of that. You have to figure out how to merge in by the time you get to C and that's where it ends up becoming complex. And that's why like with these long lived feature branches, you know, uh, that, that they talk about in the book, you know, Joe Alan, and I each have a, you know, code that we've been working on for say 90 days and Alan merges his in first. Then Joe goes through the pain of trying to get his in and he's, dealing with conflicts with his code and Alan's code. And he's making decisions about Alan's code that he doesn't know anything about. And then I come along and I have the same problem. that's where like, it's, it gets really complex fast with long lived branches. And maybe that should really be the terminology for it. it rather than feature branch, because feature branch makes it sound like it's like a brand new thing that you're trying to add. And that's why I'm trying to call out that it's not, it could be the release, the version's, That you're trying to maintain, you know, so maybe it should just be called like long-lived branches.
1: Agreed. I like that. Yeah, but there's some long-lived branches I think are are fine. Like uh, multiple concurrent releases, you know, we've talked about that before. Like if you've got a Windows 95 and a Windows 98 and a Windows 2000, like those are all branches that should live for a long time.
0: Well, I mean,
1: okay. But
2: you don't plan on merging back in. So that's why right. it's
0: called a feature branch because you're going to merge it back
2: into the trunk at some point.
0: Fine. Okay. Cause I was going to say, like, it really depends on like your, your workflow in that case. Like, and this is why, like, we have become fans of like Microsoft's, uh, you know, cherry picking strategy that we talked about during episode 90 that You know, in the case of your Windows 95 and Windows XP long-lived branches, you know, you're not necessarily trying to merge those
1: changes in. You're just cherry-picking from one to the next. Yep. Well, you know, as much as I love that guidance, I haven't cherry-picked in like six months just because of what I've been working on. I haven't missed it at all. (laughs) Not one iota. (laughs) But if you had to go back to merging code, you would appreciate it again. Yes, you absolutely would.
0: So, so it sounds like somebody only really works on uh, brand new greenfield stuff. So maybe I should be jealous.
2: <laughs> yeah.
0: Right? Yeah. Yeah.
2: Making new choices. So what we said here too, is when you have these, these feature branches, these long lived feature branches, it makes adding new features, teams and individuals really difficult. I mean, just imagine coming into that mess.
1: Yeah. It makes leaving tough too. It's like, you know, it's when you lose somebody and uh, it's like, okay, we're merging the stuff in. Who wrote this? Oh, they they left six weeks ago. Uh-huh. Okay. I was gonna
0: say if you're the person leaving, no, that's easy. Yeah. Laugh, Alicia. <laughs>
1: yeah,
0: that's
1: true. It's like, I just marked all my tickets as done and I just quit. <laughs>
0: <laughs> done. That's even colder. I wasn't even thinking about that.
1: Yeah, it's like these suckers <laughs> aren't gonna know for three more months.
0: Oh, that's hilarious. She's going like <laughs> Mark all the tickets done in your ticketing system. Yep. That's so wrong, Joe. Why would you do that? Yeah, yeah, Why would you suggest that and even throw that out there on the internet? Now somebody's going to do it. Uh, Send your complaints to Joe Chicken on Slack. <laughs> That's so wonderful.
2: Uh, so, so next up, we have uh, trunk based development. And basically merging more often means that you're finding these problems sooner in the process.
1: It it moves us closer to the single piece flow one big assembly line. Yeah, when you think about these uh you know the opposite the feature branches then you, it's a, it's a complicated graph of what's moving and going on. But when you think about everything going into the trunk or main line as often as possible, it makes it much more like a true assembly line where things are just constantly moving down one pipeline.
0: Not to mention you have that many more people like accidentally testing your code for you. That's a great point. That's a very great point. So, all the time. Yeah. Constantly building, constantly testing, you know, and using. Today's episode of Coding Blocks is sponsored
2: by Datadog, the unified monitoring platform for full visibility into
0: all of your serverless functions. Troubleshoot performance issues faster by seamlessly navigating between logs, lambda metrics, and distributed request traces all
1: within one unified platform. And Datadog provides real-time screen boards and service mapping so you can get complete observability into your serverless environment. Start monitoring today with a free 14-day trial and receive a
0: free Datadog t-shirt after creating one dashboard. Visit
2: datadoghq.com slash coding blocks to learn more about how Datadog can help you optimize your serverless environment. Again, that's datadoghq.com slash
1: coding blocks. All right. So please leave us a review. I really appreciate it. I forget if I promised something last time. <laughs> uh, so, you know, if I, if I did, just leave me a, a comment in the, uh, in the comment section and you might also win a book. So that would be pretty cool. Um, but we've been getting so many great reviews. So, uh, I feel kind of good like asking for it, but it's just so good. And like, <laughs> it's so helpful. I can't not. So if you would consider it, if you get to cooking slash review, we try to make it, uh, we try to make it easy for you. So we've got links there. We'll tell you all the places that we'd love to hear from you. And, uh, that would be fantastic. So again, it's dot net slash review. Were you supposed to give us like a
0: target number for a dance? I think you were talking about like that, like Harlem Shake or something, you
1: know. Uh, I think my wife said that I wasn't allowed to dance. I don't know why. I guess guess I'm too good at it, I think. I don't
0: know. That's not the way I remember it. You, Alan? I don't know. Uh, Yeah.
1: Yeah. It's Capoeira. Okay. Uh, That's the only.
0: Okay. I mean, we'll take what we can get.
1: I I played Eddie in Tekken 2, so I, I got this. There's a deep cut for you. I better I better get ready,
0: though, because if you do pull off a dance, then, you know, next thing I'm going to be hearing, Andrew Diamond's going to be like, hey, Outlaw, where's your dance? I'm going to be like, "God, oh, right. Bro. That's right. <laughs> uh, okay. Uh, <laughs> All right. So uh, that will be a little video uh, fun for you. Um, so with that, it's time for my favorite portion of the show. Survey says. All right. So, a few episodes back, we asked, Hey, how likely are you to advocate for working from home in the future? Oh, speaking of, this was a suggestion from Andrew Diamond. Andrew Diamond, whoa. Yeah. MVP. Yeah. All right. So, your choices were, (laughs) after this pandemic, every opportunity I get or after this pandemic, never, (laughs) or work from home. Is that even an option? All right, so let's start with Alan. What answer in percent do you think?
2: And this one's tough and I'll tell you why Mm -hmm. real quick. I think it's going to be after this pandemic, every opportunity I get, I hope that's what it is, but it's all going to boil down to how people actually did this. So there's the kid factor that I can't even account for, but then there's the other factor, which is if everybody got on meetings or whatever, and they didn't turn on cameras and they didn't become personal, you know, during that time, then it's going to be a different experience, but I'm going to go with the first one being optimistic. And I'm going to say 38%. 38%.
0: Okay. Math, of am a chicken. Um, we have a permanent nickname for you now. So
1: <laughs> it's, it's, it's a good one too. Uh, Especially geez.
0: we've seen your math skills. So it fits so well.
1: <laughs> right, right. Uh, jeez. Um, rid of e uh <laughs> <laughs> only real numbers sir only real numbers jeez it's, you know this is tough so i'm thinking that, like uh, i've got some you know co-workers that basically as long as i've known them they've been remote but they're just now kind of going back to offices and stuff and i'm trying to think whether they like it or not um there's a lot of people in big cities that just don't have great setups you know they're kind of living in smaller places so finding that room is tough so jeez, we don't we don't have like a middle of the road do we Jeez. Uh Whatever Alan said <laughs> in, in minus one? Or no, in plus no. one? I want to win
0: <laughs> Wait, wait, wait But, but what's your percentage?
1: He put whatever whatever t- Alan said
0: <laughs> <laughs> So you're telling me That you're going to go The exact same answer The exact same percent Yep That kind of it's takes tough. away The spirit of the game Chaos Okay, hey, I'm going to go with Allen and plus
2: one then. I'll go 39% and he can stick with the original Allen okay. at I like that. Okay, I like that. Yeah, I
1: got original Allen. Okay. <clears throat>
0: All right, so Alan goes with, After this pandemic, every opportunity I get at 38 and then 39%. <laughs> <laughs> and Jay-Z goes with, After this pandemic, never sticking with 38%. And the winner is... It's Alan. Sweet. Wow. Except okay. you underestimate how much people enjoy working from home. By a massive amount, it sounds like seventy-one percent. Oh, that's amazing! To every opportunity I get, every yeah. opportunity I get, they would advocate wow, for working from home. And and it was interesting too because like the uh, uh, not. Is that even an option? Like work from home? Is that even an option? Was a uh, way distant last place at three percent. Wow. So. so at three percent, you said, yeah. Oh wow.
2: Okay. So the the people 3%. that said never, it's probably the people like Jay Z said that have cramped spaces, or they've got kids and dogs and everything else, and it's just impossible to control the environment. Which I get. Well, kids funny.
0: that that are either. Maybe too old that they can't put in a daycare, but too young that they can't really fend for themselves. Right. So yeah, that could be a problem. Or or uh like roommates, you know, maybe you live in a small, you know, New York City apartment and you have to share it with roommates too. Like that would be a problem too. Uh, uh just uh, from another like a thing, you know, could be noise space, yeah, internet cool. speed connectivity. Yeah. Could be a problem. Yeah. yeah. A lot a lot of Excellent. factors that you know, some people might not enjoy working from home. There was, um, <clears throat> what's, um, Joe's going to know who I'm talking about. Gary, some, something, uh, can't remember his name. We've met him at, Gary K. Ray? uh, the Orlando code camp. He was one of the speakers and don't ever accuse him of LARPing.
1: Oh, guy, uh, guy Roy oh, Roy. Sorry. Yes. Yeah.
0: Yes. He, he was, I think it was him that <laughs> tweeted recently that, um, See, I mess up even on the easy names, uh, <laughs> guy. Yeah, he he tweeted recently where it was something like, you know, everybody talks about working from home. It's like, oh, you know, you don't you can wear you don't have to wear pants. You can, can just wear like pajamas, right? You don't even have to get dressed up. And he was like, "When's the last time you wore shoes?"
1: <laughs> I was thinking about that when I'm, one of my coworkers is at the office. I was just thinking, he's been coding in shoes all day. Like that sucks. You had to put on socks. Can you imagine how hot that would be on your feet? (laughs) Yeah. I haven't worn shoes in months. Yeah. Uh, I live in Florida. So, you know,
0: it was such a great point, though. When I read it, I'm like, oh, yeah, man. Like, you're totally right. You're on to something. All right. So, uh, for this episode survey, we ask, what is your meeting limit? So, your choices are. One is too many. There's a reason I work with computers. Or, less than five hours a week, eh, it's okay. Still, I still have plenty of me time. Or, alright, I can handle ten hours a week, but ain't nobody happy about it. (laughs) Or, lastly, bring it on. The trick is to mute when you go to the bathroom. (laughs) <laughs> that assumes work from home, by the way. Does it? Ah. Nah, nah. well it definitely <laughs> assumes you're taking that call from a. You, one it assumes you're, that the meeting is a call, and that you're taking that call from a cell phone or some kind of mobile phone. You know, some kind of portable phone. Yeah. Yeah, I really can't argue against that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this episode is sponsored by Secure Code Warrior. Secure Code Warriors gamification lets you learn how to write secure code from the start and identify bad code already present. So check this out. You want, okay, here, here it is. When I, when I say that, you know, gamify in, and learn how to write secure code, what I mean is like secure code warriors, a platform that you can bring in your organization, right? And, uh, you can have the, your team learn how to write uh, secure code, but they do it in a, a way that allows you to like gamify the whole system, right. And get points for it and see what's going on. And it doesn't matter like what your, uh, you know, area is, I'm sure like whatever language or DevOps tools you're using, they've got truckloads of stuff. So you want to do cloud formation? Great. They got that. You want to do Docker? Cool. Go. They've got that. Like, what, what do you want to focus on? Java Okay, what about Java? Do you want to like specifically look at maybe the Spring API, maybe the Enterprise Edition, or you know JavaScript? You want to focus on React? They've got the language, they've got the DevOps tools that you're using. You can gamify and build, learn good security practices right from the start, and that's what I mean. And the cool part about this is
2: when we say gamify, it's truly making it fun for developers, right? So it doesn't. It's not like a chore, like these CBT trainings that that everybody's familiar with, right? Like, uh, oh, here you got to go take your 30 minute training on how to make this code secure. And you probably were half listening to during this entire time, right? No, this is competing against your friends to see who can get there. But it's not the mindless, you know, boring type thing that you're doing. You're actually looking at code problems and trying to figure out what it is. And as you get answers right, your score goes up on a gamer board that everybody
1: can see. And, uh, as a dev, I love secure code warrior because I'm actually learning things and doing things that make me a better and safer developer. So, uh, from my experience, uh, I went in and I picked, uh, four or five languages and frameworks that I enjoyed. So I picked like net core. I picked, uh, I think node, uh, or maybe I did angular. Uh, I did Docker and Kubernetes. I, I forget what the other one was. But uh, I started doing the Kubernetes one and I uh, was working with the scenarios. And the deal is you have these challenges where you have to go through projects and find where the vulnerabilities are. And they tell you what the kind of vulnerability is. And um, I got stuck on one of the first challenges, to tell you the truth, uh, because I, I was just missing something. There was something that I just didn't know. and I didn't even know that I didn't know it. And uh, so I ended up having to use a few hints for it, which did drop my score. Um, which you know hurt a little bit but uh, you know ultimately i learned something out of it and that's not something i'm going to be forgetting anytime soon so i love that I, i'm getting something out of this training and because of the gamification it's actually fun it kind of feeds into that that uh, kind of um, collector feedback cycle that that i like and so i'm looking forward to uh, trying the, the docker one next and then i'm gonna kind of dive into the languages there and like i don't even really know what i'm going to be looking at there when we when i get to docker or you know angular for example this it's, it's those are areas where I haven't really thought too much about security. And so I'm really interested to see what they've got there. And that's just a, a small piece of what Secure Code Warrior has to offer.
0: Yeah. So head to discover.securecodewarrior.com slash coding blocks to start your next game. Score 5,000 points and you get a cool t shirt. That's discover.securecodewarrior.com slash coding blocks.
1: All right, so speaking about the things that you can do in order to uh, bring about the DevOps revolution, uh, we're going to be talking about automating and enabling low-risk releases. So like we mentioned, small batch changes are inherently less risky because less has changed since the last time you did a release, which was presumably okay. And uh, like we mentioned earlier, I think a lot of this is kind of um, recap, but the, the time to fix so the time in order to find the resolution remediate a problem is strongly correlated with the time to remediate and um th- i'll I'll give you three two three letter acronyms that are really interesting to look up uh, if you're not familiar with them MTF and MTR sometimes you'll see like other acronyms but it's basically the same thing it's mean time to find and mean time to remediate and there's actually a bunch of really good white papers out there that look at these two numbers and kind of Uh, look at them in a few different ways, but for the most part, like this is one of the few things that like all the studies agree on is the shorter the MTF, the shorter the MTR. And it just kind of makes sense if you think about it. And like we mentioned before, like if, you know, you find something six years later, the person is much more likely to have moved on or something else, or there's other things that are dependent on that thing being broken. That's hard to fix. Whereas if you find something, Five minutes after you wrote it, it's much easier to just undo before you even commit it, you know, for example. So it's extreme examples there. But uh, over and over again, like MTF and MTR strongly correlated. You see that all over the place. Uh, let's see what else. Um, oh, this is cool. So automation needs to include operational changes. So, I'll, you know, we talk about deploys a lot of times as if it's just like dumping a bunch of, of bits somewhere but a lot of times there's things like database changes or maybe a service needs to be restarted when configurations change or maybe something needs to be, I don't know, backed up or paused before deployment happens and then resumed or maybe a maintenance message needs to go up. There's all sorts of things that are related to to deployments that needs to happen and all that stuff needs to be codified too. (laughs) Thank you. Uh, (laughs) Remember
0: though, the last episode like the examples that was given in the book related uh, was um, like firewall rules as an example of like mm, that an yeah. operational totally change right. that, that you should commit, you know, you should codify <laughs> and, and commit the, you know, automate that, that deployment.
1: Yeah. And you can imagine uh, like, you know, somewhere like Google or something uh, that's had a long time to kind of mature and has a lot of people working all the cool stuff they must have in their p- deployment pipeline. So like a, a release gets ready. They probably dynamically spin up um, network rules to allow that release to even happen. They probably generate uh, keys or, you know, whatever secrets just for that one release. And they probably tear that stuff down afterwards. Like there's all sorts of cool stuff you could do as a developer. It just takes time to, to do it. And so, you know, of course that's like extreme cases, but uh, I'm sure we've all been familiar with things that like, Oh, we did the release, but we forgot to restart. And that's why you're not seeing the change or, you know, something else happened. We forgot to update the field in the database that turned the feature on or something like that. Oh yeah. Especially like in in a feature, uh, if you're using feature flags,
0: uh, for that, you know, which this book is, uh, you know, advocates for feature flags as a way to, um, release code without enabling it. Yep. Right. Which going back to our supporting, the trunk based development, then, you know, that could be one of your ways, maybe that it could work for you.
1: Yep. And, uh, the final point here, uh, is enabling self-service deployments. And this is great for teams or individuals. Uh, if you work on a significantly complex project or, uh, you know, application, sometimes you need to have a whole deployment that would happen just for a developer because you can't run all that stuff on a single machine, or uh, it's like if it's significantly cloudy or involves cache registers or you know like physical hardware in the real world, like it's it's difficult to be able to do that. And so you need to be able to enable these self-service deployments. So not only is your build pipeline able to deploy out to production. But it also needs to be able to deploy on demand to a new environment so someone can demo a new feature, can turn on flag and check something out. Or it, like say you've got a bug, you need to be able to spin up that environment in an alternate environment and uh, you know kind of mess with it in order to try and recreate the conditions that make that possible. And these things are all much easier to do once you have a good pipeline and that pipeline enables that but you got to be careful not to create these magical special unicorns. Like kind of like we talked about with like the laptop in the corner that can only do the builds. Same thing with an environment that's been manually modified. So that's the only place you can deploy because it's the only thing that's set up for it. I'm surprised you didn't
0: mention uh QA when we were talking oh, about yeah. teams,
1: like, um,
0: you know, a-, a long time ago, you know, I worked in an environment where we had our team city environment set up to where, um, QA owned, you know, part of the process. So if they wanted the ability to uh excuse me to test to test uh you know the latest code or a specific code, you know they they had access to go into and the ability to go into Team City and you know we were using that for the for deployments for uh QA environments. They could go in and click a button, like literally press a button, boom, and their their you know the deployment would go to spin off their environment. That was you know before octopus deploys and things like that, but
1: yep, you know I worked somewhere that had um feature branches and also labs. And what I mean by lab, they called them labs, so it basically meant like a, a couple different environments that stuff could be deployed to. But the deployments weren't uh automatable. You couldn't arbitrarily deploy whatever you want to wherever you want. There were like two or three labs set up, and this lab had the SharePoint farm, and this lab had Exchange and Active Directory, and this lab had the Linux bosses. And so any given day the QA would say, okay, we're deploying this feature branch to this environment and we're testing a SharePoint with it and uh, you can imagine that was all sorts of problems and things would get backed up and you know the build would be broken that day and so you'd have to bump it to the next day and get the whole schedule off and so there's just all these headaches that are around that stuff hmm. And you know if you kind of contrast that with uh, how things are done today with the modern tooling that enables those changes, it's crazy to think that we dealt with that. But you know that was a long time ago.
0: Now, now your whole uh,
1: uh, lab could be just a Kubernetes configuration. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Nowadays, like if it doesn't fit in <laughs> Kubernetes, like I don't, I don't, I don't want to do it. <laughs> now, I used to I remember thinking like, like if your project doesn't have a Docker container, I don't want to mess with it. And now I'm like, if you don't have a Kubernetes operator, <laughs> custom resource definitions, I don't want to mess with it. I've heard that Docker's than you get, but I don't know. I know, man. <laughs> <laughs>
0: maybe now maybe so now right. that author would say that kubernetes is the new docker is the new there's Git. a lot
1: of pushback on kubernetes i still see it on twitter all the time but I, I don't know i still think that uh i think kubernetes is here for a long time i think it's a safe super safe bet at this point point. and there's some people i feel like they're listening now they're like uh no doy and there's some other people are, are like that's ridiculous it's so far from my needs that i just i think you're crazy
0: and then there's some people that are like, "Oh, I've heard a lot about it, but it's a huge undertaking, and I haven't gotten
1: into it yet." Oh yeah, and it's super hard and complicated, and like it's eating my soul. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I'm in that camp. Oh, okay. Yeah.
0: So decouple your deployments from the releases. This was an interesting concept here, right? Where they they were saying like your releases are market driven. Uh, you know that that's a market driven capability or i wanted to call it a feature but uh you know the concept and market-driven concept was called that um and it, it it refers to when features are made available to the customer but going back to that whole feature flag capability you could deploy code without it being part of a release right and i think it was um maybe this chapter or maybe I'm thinking of something else that I read where they were talking about Facebook in particular, as an example where with the Facebook chat, did we talk about that in the last episode? Is that what I'm thinking of
1: where? Oh yeah. Yeah. How they rolled it out.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So it was the last episode that I remember where, where they, they slowly, they had deployed the code and only some people could get access to it. So by the time they were ready to like turn that feature flag on for the remainder of the world, it was like, oh wow! How did you do that? Like, how how did that go over so smoothly? It's because, well, technically, the code had already been deployed multiple times, and it had already gotten a lot of tests. They just hadn't like released it for everyone.
1: <laughs> yeah, remember uh, recently uh, Facebook announced uh, they had released a new reaction, and like some people had and some people didn't. I feel we getting all of in arms, and Facebook was like, "How did you do that reaction on my post? I don't have that option." It was awesome. Uh, I was entertaining like two days. <laughs> they they
2: do call out here that it is important to be very careful about when you mention a release versus a deployment because they mean two different
1: things right and and it's about building the culture around this yeah if you aren't careful with your words then you're not careful with your principles it's like one kind of follows the other like if you don't make that distinction then there won't be a distinction and you know if if you don't you know, encourage people to say deployments and releases when they mean two different things, and that, like the concept itself just gets muddied.
0: Yeah, there was another thing too, though. Like uh we haven't even talked about this, but um remember Launch Darkly? Yep. Right, their whole their whole business model was all about like feature flags and being able to like uh you know slow roll users into your your new feature so that you could see like what the you know how well it worked and like and be able to target like hey maybe i want people from you know specific regions or demographics or whatever like in order to to test your feature right um
1: you know so that i don't know it just came to mind yeah that's another one of those where i was like first heard about i'm like terrible idea i mean i should have started that company that's so dumb i can't believe people pay for that And like two days later i'm like man that's so great so fantastic i didn't even realize how important this was i'm an idiot (laughs) Oh no, here's, here, here's how it always is for me. When I hear of like any new
0: thing, like a launch darkly or anything that turns out to be a thing, I'm like, you can't make money from that. That's such a dumb idea.
1: Yeah. And
0: then they do it. I'm like, Oh
1: yeah, well that makes sense <laughs> why we need it. Selling books on the internet. It'll never work.
0: So if you uh-huh. ever have like a million dollar idea and you ask my opinion and I'm like, that's a dumb idea. Do it. <laughs> you yeah. will do it now. Yeah. Yeah, the The next thing we
2: got here is they say feature flags, they actually, you can toggle your functionality independent of the deployment, right? So maybe it's configuration or something out there, whatever, right? But the key is you don't have to deploy to get that feature turned on or off.
1: Yeah, feature flags release functionality that's already been deployed.
2: And they allow you to enable rollback and this graceful degradation, right? Like if something goes wrong, turn it off right it's it's an easy flip of the switch instead of having to oh man, we need to queue another bill. We gotta wait an hour before we have this thing out there,
1: yep, or uh, we release this feature uh to ten percent of our customers, and ten percent of our customers can't check out. It's a whole lot better than a hundred percent, yeah yep. for sure, uh, so how do we get there? so we talked about a lot of ideas we talked about culture change um how do you bring this about especially in a, a large organization or an organization that's resistant to change and we've got a couple of points of guidance here and this is a whole big section that's really good uh, but the kind of the main points here is uh they encourage you not to start over and we've talked about how starting over is you know <laughs> commonly referred to as like the worst thing you can ever do and a lot of that is because a lot of if you aren't changing your processes and you're not changing the, the way you work you're not changing the people then you just end up building the same thing. You make the same mistakes and you just end up at the same exact place with more broken stuff that you weren't aware of. That takes more time to kind of settle. So they recommend fixing forward. Oh, so. really like that one. Then there was this that. strangler pattern. Had you yeah, ever heard I of this before, before this? Uh, I think you've told me about it. <laughs> really? Uh, a couple on a past episode. Yep. Yeah. Uh, Martin Fowler. So there's a vine, I think yeah. in Australia that grows up on the trees and, uh, then, or maybe it goes down the trees. I don't know. Either way, it ends up kind of taking over the tree and it, um, you know, it uses the tree to get up to the sunshine and down to the, the ground. And over time, it just keeps growing and kind of strangling the life out of the tree. So eventually by the time it's kind of done, the tree is basically dead and gone, but the vine is strong enough to just kind of stand on its own. So it actually like eventually just eats the tree, it consumes it, and uh, doesn't need it anymore. So that's uh, the recommendation here is basically, the name is Awful Strangler. It sounds like someone's going to you know grab you in a dark hallway. But that uh, <laughs> is just basically push the good stuff in, push the bad stuff out, and eventually you're left with all good. It, oh yeah, uh, it was a fig tree.
0: I don't think that it was... I, I'd like to be able to take credit for that. I don't think I ever said anything about the Strangler pattern. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, oh well. I'm pretty sure. They should call it the
1: kudzu pattern. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Uh so we talked about this in uh twenty fourteen.
0: What we did?
1: Really? No. Uh then no. no that's You're not making actually. garbage up. <laughs> He's getting you back for the singing. <laughs> <laughs> Probably. No, uh, it, Google auto-corrected me to stranger. Well, apparently we talked about the stranger pattern in twenty fourteen. Yeah. Okay. So I don't know. I guess maybe i I made it up.
0: That makes that, that would make more sense. Um Yeah, so they talk about, like, decoupling your code and your architecture.
1: Yeah, and uh, that's something I kind of struggle with, too. Like, it it still kind of feels wrong to me to have, like, deployment bits mixed in with your source code. And, and like, I I guess I should say, like, I don't disagree with it. It just still feels off to me. I've seen some things like the GitOps patterns that kind of end up having some things in separate repositories, which I think is kind of nice because the deal here is like, sometimes you want to be able to deploy your code to many different places. So it's kind of weird to have all these different kind of support structures for deploying to Azure or Amazon or local dev or whatever, and just all in one repository and like what separate folders or override files or whatever. Uh, But, but it's also great though, because like if you're talking about your architecture, like
0: separating your decoupling, decoupling your code from your architecture. But then we're going to talk about like, Oh, it's so awesome. When we have a Docker file in our repository that sits alongside of our code and yeah. a Jenkins file uh, right there. Like, I mean, those are, those are architectural bits. And then if you have like, a, you know, any Kubernetes YAML, that's also included, like that's so much architecture that, you know, you might put in with your
1: code that wait, what does it mean to say that we're going to decouple that? Yeah, it's just kind of like you think about the same MySQL, like an open source project used in a variety of different ways. Some people bundle up with WordPress. Some people, uh, deploy it, uh, via, you know, Kubernetes. Some people do it with Docker and local development. Like there's so many different ways you can use it. Should all of those have the various bits about like where they end up in the MySQL main repository? should those be brought out into separate repositories? And like this whole kind of notion of having your DevOps stuff checked in to the same repository with code too kind of encourages, I think votes for uh, having a monorepo too, because it's hard to kind of have a really modular deployment strategy. Well, I mean, even if you take the point of like, um, uh, Oh shoot.
0: Uh, I forgot it. But, but you know, you, you you look at like, it doesn't have to, you you talk about the monorepo. It doesn't have to be a big repository. It could be like a small, like a QIT project. And you're like, Oh, hey, here's all the Docker files that you need. And now like, that's, Oh, that's architecture. But now I remember the other point I was going to make is like, last episode, we were talking about committing things like the compiler. Like that's an yeah. architectural bit, right? You know, like this is the version of GCC that we're going to use, for example, right? Or, or like, here's the version of .NET or Java, right? Like, I mean, it's maybe not the type of architecture there, were you know, they might mean more like server layout or whatever. And and maybe that's what they mean by the decouple architecture. Is they're saying like, you know, you're describing describing the servers and and the firewall rules, and it's not like a physical asset
1: only, right? Yeah, like you don't want to see like Azure logic and Azure stuff inside your you know actual code. Like those things are uh are separate and should be separate. Um but that doesn't yeah it doesn't really have to do anything with the, the repository So I kinda went on a weird tangent there. MySQL, by the way, does have a separate project for their Docker files. Huh. Oh yeah it's just kind of hard even with QIT like you know we talked about whether to do QIT as a monorepo or a bunch of separate ones. And so like if you go the separate route, like okay great. And you're like, okay, now we want to Dockerize it. Okay, great, Docker file per project that that works out great. Now Kubernetes and some of these services are dependent on each other, so we need like one mass, like one big, yeah, project that knows about all the other projects. Uh, That's where in like open source projects that are like that, like
0: it, that can get complicated. But you know, maybe within your own company, if you have like, uh, you know, a Nuget feed or an artifact or something like that, where you could push like common, um you know compiled bits which even in an open source project if you were like you know npm things or like push up to N- NuGet or whatever then
1: you can get away with it right oh my gosh so here's an analogy for you i just decided on this and it is maybe not good but you know we talked about the uh, SQL optimizers a couple of episodes back and how if you're doing working with a noSQL database you really have to think about how your data is going to be used together because it's up to you to come up with a good schema that's able to fetch everything that you need otherwise you're going to be doing a lot of stupid work and it's a lot of waste. So splitting up your repositories is kind of the same way like you really have to know how to split those up so that you're not, you know, doing things in a terrible way and that things that are related to each other and that you're changing together, aren't totally separated. So it's up to you to really have a good understanding of that. Whereas if you have a monorepo, repo, it's like, screw it. Let's just throw it all in one place and let the, the, uh, the DevOps person figure it out.
2: <laughs> I mean, even- it solves a lot of problems when you have one repo,
1: it
0: solves a ton of problems, but it also does create some other ones. It right? creates like a ton performance. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it, it really depends on like what your threshold for various types of pain are. And so it might solve all the problems that you're not willing to, to live with. And the ones that it introduces, you're like, eh, I can, I can deal with that. Right. Sure. Um, but also too, I mean, like I kind of view, repositories of code is like a living breathing thing. And it's going to like breathe in, it's going to breathe out, it's going to expand, it's going to contract. And like, we've seen repos where we've had like, you know, we shrink them down. And so they contract and we have you know, individual repos for every little thing. And then, you know, it starts to expand back out and it becomes a mono repo, you know, a- as it breathes in. And then it, you know, comes back, you know, so like they, they organically come in, you know, uh, grow and shrink, you know, as, as, um, things change within the the team and the organization and the needs right yeah so well we should do a survey on that sometime that's going to uh, wrap up our review of the first way the technical practices of flow
1: yeah for sure do you guys have uh, any like what was your biggest takeaway what was the thing that you got the most out of or anything you liked or didn't like the first way I mean, t-
0: for me, it was some of the case studies that I really liked. You know, mm-hmm. I, I, we talked about the hand-on cord. I really liked that one. I, I liked hearing about the, the Facebook uh, chat because, like, it was also something like this Facebook chat one especially was something that you kind of relate to. You know, you could think back to, like, you know, over a decade ago when they introduced it. I'm like, oh, yeah, I don't remember. That. So, I, I liked some of those case studies. I know you hated them, but... <laughs>
2: so funny. That's actually my biggest takeaway is like reading this is I enjoyed the case studies because it brought some things to life that it's hard for people to see, right? You can tell somebody, Hey, if we do this, then we'll get this return. And, and unless people can see it, touch it, feel it, it just doesn't, it doesn't materialize for them. And these case studies bring some of that stuff to life, right? Like the fact that people could, could deploy an environment and it saved eight weeks Right. And that kind of stuff was just awesome to hear. I mean, I've already bought into the whole DevOps story, so so yeah, a I lot think, of the stuff that we talked about here was if it was a brand new idea to me, then maybe it would have been more impactful. But that's
0: why the case study spoke to me more than necessarily the, the content. I I agree with that too. Because like, yeah, having already bought into it and, and liking it, the idea of it and agreeing with it. Then it's like, okay, I mean, you know, at least some of the parts so far, it's like, okay, now, like, we've talked in the past about, like, the, you know, is it a, a role versus a culture? So I think that was another thing that, you know, we're, we're getting into, like, that kind of idea too, is like, you know, do, and we said, like, we would probably wait till we got, you know, later on to, to have that discussion, but yeah. Or have it I again.
2: Say one other thing to piggyback on here, and this is probably my last thought on this this section here. Is the reason I have bought into it is because I've seen it pay the dividends that this this entire section was talking about. Right? It, it's not it's not mythical. It's not some made up thing. If you get these things in place, it simplifies your life as a developer, as a manager, as a QA group, as a team it just makes everything so much better in a day-to-day. And it, it's it's not only measurable, but it also has a big morale impact because when you're not dealing with tedious stuff like, why did this not work today, whatever, don't get me wrong, some builds have problems, right? Like things are going to happen, versions change, whatever. But when you're not thinking about this 90% of the time, it frees you
0: up to actually concentrate on the interesting business problems. We'll say that there, there are some concepts that we've talked about, though, that are like taking it to more of an extreme than I've been in environments, you know, in the environment where it's more extreme than the environments I've been in to date that I'm kind of excited to see like, oh, I can't wait to get to that type of that type of environment. Right. where like using the same binaries throughout the entire pipeline, that kind of thing. Well, no, not like that. Like, I mean, even the three of us, we've been in environments where we've done that, right. Where with like, you know, uh, Nougat specifically, you know, um, or, you know, even artifactory cases for, you know, um, Maven, for example, being pulling from an artifactory, but, um, you know, I, I was thinking more like along the lines of like automating, you know, user acceptance testing. That was something that we talked about last time, like, you know, How do you do that? What does that look like? But, um, you know, automating that, automating more performance testing, you know, I'd like to see more things like that happening.
2: So what about you, Joe? Any takeaways?
1: Yeah. I think high level, just talking about how important it is to get the kind of the rest of your team on board. Um, how, how much of DevOps is really about getting, uh, the people thinking, you know, all in the same way in the line, which is really tough. But also just the definition of done. I really like that part, and I'm still chewing on how to really get it because it's it's so easy. Just mark something as done when you check it in, and you can even link to the pull request. But it's really not done until it's deployed to a production-like environment with appropriate tests in place that verify its you know correctness and performance, and just everything that that really when your your boss or whoever or asks you when something's done, if you can truly say yes, and it's so hard to capture that, and uh, I really want that.
0: Like that. All right. Well, very cool. Uh, we will have plenty of links in the resources we like section, including links to the DevOps handbook, the Phoenix project, and the Unicorn project. And with that, we head into
1: Alan's favorite portion of the show. It's the tip of the week. All right. Looks like I'm up first. Um, so, uh, yeah, I'm not so great at the tips, but. One tip I do have uh is to play lots of video games to help you stay sane. Uh, I particularly enjoy um g- uh card games and I guess like stupidly violent games. <laughs> Sorry. When you say <laughs> uh, gl- card games pleasure. are you thinking like a Hearthstone? Yes. Okay. Slay the Spire, Monster Train. Got you. Yes. Not Texas Holden, Good No. No, like, if I'm going to be playing cards like they should have like you know devils or orcs or something on them like i don't want to see spades and clubs get out of here <laughs> i mean the same game i want the same games i just want cooler pictures <laughs> with taunts exactly yeah. Yeah, and so yeah so play lots of video games and if you do uh coding blocks has a gaming channel uh that has a bunch of awesome people in it that um have turned me on to like all those games i just listed and uh also there's a spreadsheet at the top of google drive you can click the pin notes and see uh People's names uh, that you can play with on Steam or uh, other places. Um, what else is there? Uh, that's it.
0: I didn't know this. I was going to yeah. say the same thing. I don't look up enough. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. The I never noticed the, there was a correct.
1: spreadsheet.
2: Yeah.
0: Yep. You can that's in Slack.
2: There. That's in our Slack community. I feel like the, that should have been yeah, your tip yep. of
0: the week is look up in the Slack channel. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Read it's the it's description because there might be some cool stuff up there.
1: Yeah, and there's a Discord, too. Like, there's uh, there's occasional activity in the Discord. And so if you're looking for someone to play uh, Deep Rock Galactic or, uh, I don't Overwatch. know, something in, look, check the pin posts.
0: Love it. I don't like how you didn't agree with my Overwatch. But, you know, whatever. We'll let it slide.
1: Well, I used to play Overwatch. I remember that game. That's oh good. <laughs> we should do that again.
0: All right. Well, with that, uh, so my tip of the week is... Uh, we, we've talked Alan, I think specifically gave a tip that was similar to this, but it was at the operating system level, but it turns out that JetBrains has baked in a similar feature in at the IDE level. So within like a data grip or an IntelliJ, those are the ones I've tried, but I'm assuming it's any of the idea idea based IDEs. You can have a clipboard of recent, uh, how to say this, a a, a clipboard of your clipboard. So whatever you've copied, you know, like as you've copied multiple things into it, right, and you've you've built up this queue, in JetBrains, you can press Control-Shift-V and it'll bring up a window that'll show you that queue of everything that you've recently copied into the clipboard and then you can pick just the one specific thing that you want to paste in. Now, I will say that Unlike Alan's tip when he mentioned it at the operating system level which I believe was a Windows specific a Windows 10 specific feature uh this is not cross um um IDEs so like if you do it in if you have a couple things pasted in DataGrip and then you go over to IntelliJ you're not going to see that same queue uh, but but maybe that works in your favor right because then you know, as you copied something into the clipboard from one application and then you go back to another, you know, you're like, oh man, what was it? You know, it's at least it's still there. Right. Uh, that's still pretty good. Yeah. The one I, the one that I had shared was uh, Windows V. And I remember too. And when you mentioned that one though, there was like a security uh, gotcha with that because like, If you put a password in there, like you would literally be able to see it, right? Like it showed up in the notifications bar, if I remember right. Uh, I don't know about that,
2: but you do have to turn the feature on. So if you were to hit Windows V in Windows right now, it'll basically say, hey, if you want to see it all, you have to turn on clipboard history. Uh, I don't know if it'll actually show you the passwords. There was a
0: security gotcha there with it. I I recall you mentioned it at the time. I just don't know what recall specifically what it is. But yeah, at least with win. this one though no. you can have that same similar type of benefit without that without worrying about that security benefit. And I, and I guess like I haven't tried this on a Mac but I would assume that it would be like a command shift v on a Mac for the same feature.
2: Yeah, I'm not on I've not tried right it. Now. Yeah. Very nice. All right, so I have I have two and these both <laughs> actually stem from the same day. So Joe Zach said, you know, you need to play some video games to stay sane. I think that we all need to do things to stay sane right now. Right? Like we've now been locked up for four months, you know, for those of us that are sort of adhering to whatever the, the guidelines are for, you know, staying away from people and isolating or whatever. And man, there's just some days, I don't know about you guys where I'm just like, I need to get out. Right. Like I, I love working from home. Like I would have been in that percentage. I love the fact that if I want to go run an errand, I can, I, I, I just, I really enjoy working from home, but there are days that I'm like, I can't be in these same four walls. Like I've, I've got to go somewhere. And so like there for a week or two before the temperatures got brain melting outside here in Georgia Um, I was actually going to a park down the road from me to where, you know, there's geese, there's ducks, there's deer, there's, you know, it was just nice. And so my tip is, if you got a cell phone and you have a data plan, it's usually like an extra 10 bucks a month to add tethering to it. That's cheaper than renting office space. And it's probably cheaper than the two meals that you bought in any given day. You know, add that and take your laptop out. And, uh, you know, go work for a few hours outside or somewhere else, somewhere new. Right. And, and you can still do it in a way that will keep you safe from the pandemic type stuff that's going on. But it it, it is nice to get that mental break.
0: Yeah. And Alan, as Alan said, uh, like, for example, if you live in Georgia, you only get two weeks out of the year that you can do that (laughs) (laughs) in Florida. I think it's like a day. Oh my god! It got hot this past
2: week. I, I I was out there until after lunch, and like by the time I got back into my vehicle, I had sweat running down every line of my body. It was it was ridiculous. But um, and and I, I'll have a link to the Twitter thing where I actually have a picture of where my office was that day, and it was awesome. And and even office. I need to dig up another. Yeah, my office, my my secondary office. I even have another tweet that I put out there where this duck just came over next to me and kind of looked up at me like, yo, I'm going to do some yoga here for a minute. Cool with that? And then right after he was done, he just laid down right next to me and took a nap. And I was like, yeah, I didn't get that at home.
0: He was probably expecting (laughs) you to feed him.
2: He was, but these ducks know me now and, uh, they know that they can just come over to me and I'm not some little kid that's going to chase them around screaming at them. Right. So, so they kind of come to me as the comfort guy at the park right now. So, um, and, and so here's the next thing, right? So, I've mentioned my absolute hatred for the Mac touch bar. And when I say absolute, like it's pure hatred. Like there's not much that I dislike more than this on a laptop. Outlaw didn't like the number pad on a keyboard. I can forgive that all day long. That touchpad offends me. And like, quick touch ways. pad or touch bar? The touch bar. Hey, the touch pad also offends me because it's gargantuously big, but the touch bar makes me angry.
0: But you don't have so- the false touches on the touch pad that you have, like on the MSI, right?
2: It, it depends on the Windows drivers, right? Like if you have oh, a good indeed. touchpad in Windows, true. But the Mac, the MacBook Pro's touchpad is by far the gold standard, okay. right? The, I'll
0: give you that. So, this, Although, just the touch bar is the nonsense, I want to focus in on the touch bar.
2: The touch bar is the nonsense. So here was the thing that made me mad, right? So I work in a browser most of the time. Now, now here's the deal, right? So where we all work now, we are forced to use G Suite, which is the Google set of tools. Guess what? They all run in a browser. So you're always in a browser all day long with everything. And man, I don't know about you guys, but when I go to hit the escape button with my pinky finger, I never had to think about my ring finger and if it was touching anything else because it
0: didn't matter, right? It wasn't putting enough pressure on anything to where it was ever a concern. Well, that's the real thing. Even if it was touching it, it wasn't putting pressure on it. So it wasn't a problem. It didn't matter. And that's why mechanical keyboards are so amazing.
2: Have you ever, if you ever got like, man, I'm going to have to go into it. I'm getting hot right now thinking about this. Like I'm I'm almost sweating right now. So have you ever done something on a computer and it keeps doing something that it shouldn't do? And you can just feel bile rising in you. Like you want to break a keyboard in half. You want to throw the monitor out the window and you just want to leave. Right. I was out there programming at my secondary peaceful office and my blood pressure started rising because I hit the escape button to do something. I was on a glyphy diagram, which by the way, oh. these things are already infuriating. All right. So, so let's go ahead and paint the picture. You're in a browser making a, a Visio drawing, which should have been done in Visio. I right? can see this going sideways. So many different ways. Dude. To unselect something, the only way most of the time is to hit the escape button. You can even try and click on other things and it still won't work, but you got to hit the escape button. Did it take you back out to the wiki page? Dude, here's the deal. In Chrome, the freaking back button was the... The virtual key that was right next to the escape button. Oh, God. So I'm in the middle of drawing a diagram that I've spent 30 minutes on, and I keep hitting this escape thing, and then my ring finger brushes that back button. Man, I almost tossed my MacBook Pro into the lake. I swear to you, I was so furious.
0: Okay, here's where I thought you were going with this, though, because in t- this is I've had similar complaints specific to Gliffy. This isn't a a thing with the MacBook Pro touch bar, because uh, for those not familiar with Gliffy, like I think you described it, it's like a imagine if you were to draw like Visio diagrams or any kind of like any kind of drawing where you want to like connect, you know, create these boxes, draw lines. And then as you move the boxes around, the lines can redraw themselves. You know, it's that type of a tool. I'm. If I recall, because I've ran into this, you, you can be in that drawing, and if you press escape, it'll take you back out to like if you were in Confluence, for example, and you do it the backspace button, yes, the yep.
2: backspace
0: button. Oh, is it the back. backspace. I thought it was that's the escape. what happened because I've had that. You're probably
2: editing text, and, and you weren't in the text box, and you hit backspace, okay. and it took you back to the previous
0: page. I couldn't remember the exact scenario, but I have had a scenario where like where that happened to me. And I was like you, I was ready to just destroy the world, right? (laughs) Like there weren't enough games to keep me satisfied. I don't care like how many slay the Spire Jay-Z wants to play. Like I was not happy, but to Gliffy's uh, credit though, like I could go back and and re edit that drawing, and it 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 would had saved where I was, and it like just picked it back up. You know, I didn't lose. Usually,
2: anything. it was pretty good about saving yeah. enough drafts. I did lose some changes, but the problem is that happened to me like five
0: times. Oh and I'm yeah, trying because to get that touch thing. that back button is like so easy to graze as you're going reaching for that escape key.
2: Okay, so now that my temperature, my internal temperature is now above a hundred and two or somewhere. Um, <laughs> Now I will give you, as a MacBook Pro user that has that lame touch bar, there is a solution, at least in Chrome. You can go to the View menu and go to Customize Touch Bar, and you can delete that back button out of there. Now, here's what stinks about it. They don't have a way to just put like a finger size space right there because that's really what you need right you just need one finger now if you're somebody that lays your entire hand down and you hit the escape button just delete all the buttons on the entire touch bar right but for me it was just that one little graze of the fingertip for the finger so what i did is i deleted those buttons and then they have a little spacer that you can drag up there so i drug about 30 of those things up into the touch bar and so now chrome no longer makes me want to burn down the world so it's uh that's a huge tip. Just know it's, it's application dependent, whether or not they've implemented these touch bar controls. But if there's an app to where you find yourself hitting the escape button and something else accidentally happening, go up into that view menu. And there's probably a customized touch bar setting to where you can customize the buttons that
0: show up for that application. And here, Apple thought they were doing the right thing just by adding the physical escape key back, right? It It is better. <laughs> it is better. Just bring the rest of the physical keys back and we'll be okay. Just
2: get rid of the touch bar, man. The only time I ever use it is to do the volume or the brightness. I was perfectly fine when those were physical function key toggles that you did on the thing.
0: I tell you the one that bothers me though, and I don't remember which specific Mac, MacBook Pro or I don't, or just Mac and Macs in general, uh, laptops, let's say specifically to the laptops where they introduced this. But in one of the models, they used to have the, the power button used to be like its own physical little round button that was off in like the top corner. And then they moved it into the keyboard and it was like right next to, uh, like the delete key or something like that. <laughs> yeah. And, and like, there's so many times where I'll like, if I'm on that model Mac or, or one of those model Macs and I'll be typing along, I'm like, Oh, let me delete. Boom. And I just hit the, turned it off. and like, dang it. It's, it's didn't mean turn night. it off.
2: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> hey, 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 for the record, I will say, so as much vitriol and hatred as I have for that touch bar, like truly, truly hate that thing. The This model of the MacBook Pro, which I think is a 2019 or 2020, but it's a 16-inch. It's the 16-inch. It's really a good machine because they put the headphone jack back in it. They added the hard escape button. The only thing, the only two things that truly stink about it are the touch bar and the trackpad, that's the size of the entire base of it. But outside it's 50 of that, 50% of the base for sure, it's massive. At least it is
0: good. So, so I'll give it that. I'm, I think we've kind of described this before, but like, how in the world is it that the company who. Focused so hard on keyboards specific to like iOS, for example. And that was like a big part of why their platform took off. How is it that they have gone the exact opposite direction and messed it all up and lost so much, uh, you know, so many people from it. And and as a, as a side effect of that, like reputation and everything that goes along with that, this like, okay, I mean, I commend you for trying some things, but at some point, you got to stop being stubborn. Recognize, hey, this was a failure and bring it back. And they did that with the escape key. Do the rest of them. They did it with the headphone jack too, yeah. which,
2: by the way, they had killed off on the previous one. And I would have never bought a MacBook Pro without the headphone jack in it. Like, that just doesn't make sense. Yeah. But, yeah. So, so, outside of those two things, it is a great little machine. I'll give it that. But, um, yeah, man. God, just make it a touchscreen. Get rid of the freaking touch bar, make a touchscreen and be on with it. Right. Th- double it with iOS and let's call it a
0: day. Like, uh, I don't know. Yeah, and if you work for sev- system 76, please take away the numpad, just center the rest of the keyboard. <laughs> I want that 17. It looks gorgeous except for that stupid keyboard. All right. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> with that off my chest. Uh, yeah. So as I said, we, we, we hope you've enjoyed this, uh, uh, talk about the first way in the, the principles of flow in the DevOps handbook. And with that, uh, you know, in case if you happen to, you know, hear this show because a friend, uh, sent you a certain link or, you know, let you borrow a device or whatever, you can subscribe to us yourself on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, you know, wherever you like to find your podcast apps. We're cool, you know, uh, <laughs> and, uh, if there's a place where you want to find a podcast that you can't find us, uh, that you'd like to get your podcast from, let us know and we will correct that. Um, uh, that, that we got a lot of feedback, like at Orlando code camp about, um, SoundCloud and guess what? We fixed that. Um, and as Jay-Z said, you know, we do appreciate those reviews. So if you'd like to find some helpful links, you can head to the w dub dot slash review, and you can find some helpful links. Yep, Well done. And while you're up there, definitely check out our show
2: notes. I mean, if if there's anything that you heard during the show that you think that you want to remember, just go up there. It's probably in the show notes. So check those out. And we also have other articles, videos. We have music videos. So, you know, definitely go check out cuttingblocks.net. It's ridiculous.
1: Yeah. Oh, geez. And I just, i realized, what I should have named the uh, the record company afterwards in the music video. But you'd have to wait for the next one for that. Okay. Uh, geez. Uh, send your feedback, question, ants rants to the Slack, and make sure to follow us on Twitter at CodingBlocks or head over to CodingBlocks.net net and s- links at s- uh, social top page. I don't know what happened there. Ants rants and slings slots. I don't know what happened. <laughs>
2: it's codified it's all good yep uh